We're carrying on this morning in John's Gospel. Um, We're going to look at chapter 11, 1 to 39. If you were here last week, you remember that uh, Jesus' disputes with the religious leaders in Jerusalem came to an end. And he talked about how he, as God's son, um, was the one who was able to give life to his sheep as God's shepherd of this flock. He was the one who was able to hold on to them so that they will never perish. Now the story we're starting this week is um, a worked example, as it were. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Martha, sorry Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection. At the last day, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. Very deliberately leaving that on a cliffhanger. Um, I suspect most of you know what comes next. If you haven't, didn't, don't know what comes next, there are some clues in the story to tell us. But I think it's quite helpful to pause there. Um, have you ever prayed a prayer that wasn't answered? Um, if there's anyone who can answer no to that question, probably it's because you haven't done any praying. <laughs> um, have you ever, when those prayers are prayed, ever felt whether you knew it was the right thing to feel or not? Have you ever felt God didn't love you enough or been inclined to feel unloved by God, at least, when you hadn't those prayers answered? Um, leads us to ask a question about ourselves. You know, how do we know God loves us? Do we know God loves us from our circumstances, from what happens to us? Or do we know God loves us because of what he says to us and says about us in his word? Um, I mean, if you think about it, if we know that, if we knew that Jesus loved us through what happens to us, through our circumstances, then God obviously didn't love Jesus very much. He had a pretty awful life when you add up all the details. Well, these, this chapter, is, it's about three people, isn't it, who didn't have their prayer answered. Um, Mary and Martha especially, but probably even Lazarus himself. Um, that's why we're pausing here, because it's worth not jumping straight to the end of the story. These people are sitting here in bitterness, in pain, in grief, and they're waiting. They don't know what the end of the story is any more than we do when we pray. You know, four days in the scheme of things isn't long, but still they were days of awful waiting and grieving and pain. So rather than rushing on to the end of the story, let's pause with them. Let's see what Jesus has to say to us and to them in pain and waiting. Jesus will express to these people um, deep love. Um, this is true love. It's also love that brings truth and it's truthful love, and it's tender love as well. Um, this is 
a wonderful passage to help us when we are struggling with unanswered prayer. It's also a passage that teaches us a lot about how to walk through, how to cope with, maybe that's the wrong word, grief and pain and bereavement. Uh, you know, we had a funeral this week for Sally. It's a year this week my dad died. There are others of you here who have had funerals recently. This is a passage that shows Jesus coming to a funeral, or rather the aftermath of one, and his response to those in grief and those in pain. So firstly, we see true love. I was tempted to title this actually inexplicable love, um, because it's a strange sort of love that we see in the beginning of this passage. You see, the first point is simply that Jesus is going to show love to these people, to Martha and to Mary and to Lazarus, but it is not the love they expect It is not the love that, first of all, they might have even asked for. Uh, It isn't what we would do if we were in Jesus' situation. But it is real, true love. So John sets the scene for us. Lazarus is sick. He is a friend of Jesus. He is brother to the famous Mary and Martha, the ones who had disagreement about whether it was better to listen to Jesus or get the dinner ready. Um... The same Mary who, in chapter 12, will, in gratitude and love for Jesus, pour uh, a bottle of incredibly valuable perfume over his feet. And they send word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. It's a really simple little message, isn't it? Um, They don't beg him to come. They don't try and tell him what to do. They don't say, as long as you come here by this time, please come there by this time, or why don't you heal him from a distance? They don't give him instructions. They know perfectly well that Jesus is capable of healing him. Jesus has done a lot of miracles by this point. But they trust him to do what's right. That's the only real explanation for the extreme shortness and simplicity of this message. Now that trust is going to be tested. They are going to feel, perhaps, like it was a mistake. In the end, they were absolutely right. That trust will will prove to be the right call. They will be glad of it. For the next four days, not so much. Notice one key thing about it, though. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Here's a little hint for our prayers when you ask Jesus to do something. They don't say, uh, we love you, please come. They don't say, we've been trying really hard to live good lives, please reward us by coming and healing our brother. They just say, the one you love is sick. You know, God doesn't answer us because we're great, or because we love him. He answers because he loves us. Jesus' response um, is to tell his disciples the end result of this sickness is not going to be death. But through it, God's glory is going to be made clear. God will be seen to be majestic and wonderful and powerful. And in the process, God's Son will be glorified through it. He himself, his greatness and goodness, and life-giving love will be made clear. Notice the next thing. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 5. We've just heard they say that Jesus loves Lazarus. What Jesus does next might tempt us to think, well, they were obviously exaggerating or weren't quite right about it. But John wants us to know, no, no, they were absolutely right. Jesus really loved these people. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What he's going to do, which is strange, is not because he doesn't love them. 
It is because he does love them that he's going to do it. The next verse is the shocking one. Yet when he heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He does absolutely nothing. He doesn't heal him from a distance. He doesn't go to him. This verse is actually even more shocking than it seems at first. In other versions of the Bible, other translations like the NIV or the ESV, um, they translate it slightly differently. And they're probably right. I think the the translators of this version, which is excellent, I'm not criticising it, um, they were unwilling to... They were a bit shocked, (laughs) basically. And a little unwilling to make how clear it is. It doesn't say, yet, although Jesus loved them, he didn't go. It says... So, when he heard Lazarus was sick, because he loved them, he chose not to go. Precisely because he loved them so much, he stayed where he was. Which is confusing, isn't it? Um, And I'm sure they were confused. Again, have you ever prayed a prayer and not had an answer and thought, he doesn't love me? That is probably what they are feeling when the messenger comes back and Jesus doesn't. Why on earth is he leaving them in this horrible situation? Um, This is done because he loves them. He has a better plan. Now, he knows them, they trust him, and he loves them. So he's going to take them through something that is harder, but in the end is better. So after two days, he tells the disciple, it's time now, and they're shocked. They thought the reason he was staying away is because he... Couldn't go back. It was too dangerous. And so they say, you know, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, yet you're going back there. That's what we heard last week. Remember, they were standing around him with stones in his hands. He barely escapes with his life. And so they're really shocked. He's going back, even though he's risking his life. They're not wrong. This is the turning point in John's Gospel. Up to now, he's been teaching, going back to and fro. He's not going to or fro anymore. We're only in chapter 11, it's halfway through the gospel, but this is where the countdown clock begins to his death. He is not, he's going to Bethany near Jerusalem. He is not coming back. They will kill him. So he is choosing to put his life on the line here. He knows exactly what's happening. And in a sense, that's what he tells the disciples. He says, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble. He sees by this world's light. In other words, I can see what I'm doing. <laughs> I know what's happening. I know that they want to kill me. And so he goes. And he tells them, um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. That's a metaphor the Bible does, quite often used for death, but the disciples obviously don't get it. They think, oh, he's, he's drifted off to sleep after a few days of, I don't know, difficult fever or something like that. And they think, oh, great, he's, he's passed the worst of it. But then he tells them plainly, No, no, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus isn't glad for his own sake. He would have doubtless liked to be there. But for their sake, he's glad he wasn't. Because what's going to happen at the end of this story will give them a new faith and confidence they simply couldn't have without the events of this chapter. Um, Because when they come to believe and trust firmly and deeply in him, and the same is true of of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, of course, that is a greater joy for him than for them to be spared a bit of suffering 
That may seem difficult, but in the, he knows that in the long run, that will be more deeply for their good, more deeply for their joy, more deeply for their confidence and hope in the midst of suffering and struggle than taking away the suffering right now. Disciples are shocked, but they put a brave face in it. Thomas says those great words, let us also go that we may die with him. He won't be so brave in a couple of weeks, but he has the right attitude. Just pausing there for a sec. Uh, Jesus' love here doesn't look how we'd expect. Often we see Jesus loving in ways that we could normally relate to, but here he loves in a way that is unexpected and and shocking. And I suppose the the closest parallel is when you love your kids, isn't it? Sometimes when you love your kids, you do exactly what they want. You know, they've fallen over, you give them a hug. They like that. It's a natural thing. Sometimes you want them to grow up. And sometimes that means that you don't do the thing that they really, really, really want you to do. I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is going to ask these people who love him and he loves to do something hard, to go through something difficult, so that they can grow up to a greater wisdom and responsibility and trust in their faith. That brings us, secondly, to 17 to 27, truthful love. Jesus is going to speak truth now into Martha's life in a way that will help her in her grief. So, um, actually, just just before we go on, Jesus is going to show his love for Martha and for Mary. They are going to say the same thing to him when he meets them, or almost the same thing. And he is going to show his love to each of them in completely different ways. One of them, he is going to show truth. He is going to speak to her truths about himself and about life and death that will give her strength and faith and hope to carry her through. Wonderful truths. Truths that all of us, uh, in advance of grief, should be putting into our own hearts to help us when we get to that grief. Mary, on the other hand is, it seems, emotionally broken. I suspect, as we'll see, that she wouldn't have been able to absorb deep truths about the faith. And you'll see that he reacts to her in a completely different way. He doesn't speak truth to her. He weeps with her. And there's a, there's a lesson for us for what we need in our grief. There's also a lesson for us when we talk to those who are in grieving ourselves. But firstly, this is truthful love. Love that brings truth. Jesus arrives. Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. Uh, in crude terms, he is very dead. Uh, I think that's what, what it's empathizing here. Uh, Jesus isn't just a bit late. That, that last word we read of the passage says, you know, practical. Martha says to him, you know, by this time there'll be a stench. In other words, We're not arriving in time to wake up the guy who's unconscious, but they thought we're dead. He was very dead. Jesus has missed the funeral. He's missed everything. Uh, Interestingly, uh, four days, it's possible Jesus would never have been able to make it in time, even if he had left when the messenger arrived. Bethany is close to Jerusalem. The house is full of friends from Jerusalem, only a couple of miles away, there to comfort them. But Martha, when she hears that Jesus is there, comes straight out to meet him. 
And she, she meets him with those pain-filled words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The thing is, that's absolutely true, isn't it? You know, we've seen Jesus heal sick people. You go to the other Gospels, they're even fuller of Jesus healing sick people. She knows perfectly well that if Jesus had been there, he could have put his hands on his head and he'd have got straight up. So can you imagine what these days have been like? Can you imagine what it was like when he was sick, waiting for Jesus, longing for Jesus to come? And then four or five days afterwards, full of regrets, just going over and over in her mind, why did it have to happen this way? Why didn't he come? It's hard to see how, we're hard to know exactly how she said that. We don't know what her tone of voice was. Was there bitterness or was it just grief? We don't know. But interestingly, she has not lost hope in him. She says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. It's hard to say exactly what she's asking for. But she knows that everything is within Jesus' power. And because she says that, Jesus can see that she does still have hold of the basic truth and hope of her faith. And she sees too that therefore she is ready, able to listen to what more Jesus can say to her. And so he says, your brother will rise again. You have that great hope. This death is not forever. You will, he will rise again. He will live again. You'll see him again. And as we saw in John 10:28, Jesus gives his sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. And he's saying, you know, to, to Martha, know the comfort of that. It doesn't take away the pain, but it is still truth. And it makes grief different, as Paul would later say to the Thessalonians. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Not saying we don't want you to grieve, but he is saying grieve knowing hope. And grieve knowing that Jesus died and rose again and so God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those who die trusting him will come back to life. Know that. Martha, and let it strengthen you in the middle of your grief. You will be reunited with him. And Martha answers in a way that really does demonstrate her faith, doesn't she? As well as her pain. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She has hope and faith here. At the same time, at the last day. It's a long time, isn't it? Jesus responds to her in, in a way that's designed to take her, I think, from a general hopefulness in that day, a general awareness of that truth, to a more focused trust in him. She believes in the resurrection. She said, I, I know there will be a resurrection. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Don't have just, just vague confidence that one day life will come back. I am the resurrection. He has already said he is the one who will call the dead out of their tombs earlier on in John. You're not hoping in a, a vague thing. You're, put, trust me personally to give him life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I said those words this Wednesday at Sally's funeral. We say them at every funeral. That is the Christian hope. And so he asks, do you believe this? 
Do you, Martha? Do you, you and I? Do we believe this, that there is life in him, life for, for the dead and, and from the dead, that whoever lives and believes in him will never die? She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. She understands now that God's Christ, his anointed king, is the one who gives life. He is the one she has to trust. And she understands, and she does. She, she trusts here. I'm sure she's still got tears in her face. But it's a different kind of grief when you have hope in the future, isn't it? I was reading recently uh, a book by C.S. Lewis called Grief Observed. Um, he, um, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, writer married quite late in life and fairly quickly lost his wife to cancer um, and he really really struggled with grief and you know his, his book describes what that grief was like most of his books are sort of polished really helpful uh, they, they talk about the different questions you might have about whether Christianity is true or not the different issues and really helpful persuasive arguments this one is a little bit different it's so much roar because it is not a book with all the answers. In some ways it's still very helpful. He makes excellent points. But I couldn't help noticing as I read that book that he was not exactly sure what happened after death. He was a wonderful Christian teacher in many ways. On that one point, he wasn't quite sure. that He, he thought about the, the Catholic idea of purgatory, whether after death you go and you're punished for your remaining sins, even if you do trust in Jesus, and you know, have them punished out of you for a few million years, and then come to heaven. And obviously, the thought that she might be suffering like that was an awful one. Now, Obviously we have many Catholic brothers and sisters who are better Christians than we are. And yet, that is not a biblical truth. There is no, that is not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. He talks about life, never about that kind of punishment. And it just... Martha, when she listened to the truth that Jesus gave, had reason for hope. When we get those wrong, even a little bit wrong, as C.S. Lewis does, it makes our grief far more bitter and painful. If we hold on to the words of Jesus himself, it's still hard. But it stops us slapping ourselves with unnecessary and extra griefs, if that makes sense. Secondly, sorry, thirdly, though, we see the tender love of Jesus in 28 to 39. Mary is very different, and so Jesus' response to her is very different. Some of us, when we are grieving, are open to being reminded of truth and hope in Christ. Um, if we're grieving for a long time, as many of us will, we'll be open at different moments. But sometimes there isn't anything you can say. We all, we all know that, don't we, about grieving people. Sometimes there isn't anything helpful you can say. Sometimes it's not the right time. The intensity of Mary's grief, I think, is what makes, it, makes that the case for her. 
So Martha goes home, she calls her sister Mary aside and says, the teacher's here and asking for you. She goes out quickly. It looks like she's trying to go and, and talk to him privately. Unfortunately, this big crowd comes along of all the people there who are grieving with her. And when she sees Jesus, verse 32, she simply falls at his feet. Um, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Remember, those are exactly the same words Martha said. So exactly the same question that has been tormenting Martha is tormenting Mary. How different it would have been if you were here. Why isn't it different? But unlike Martha, she seems to have lost her confidence. She doesn't say anything else. Or even if she has her confidence, it's buried underneath the grief so deep that she's not feeling it right now. Probably the falling at her, his feet is part of that expression of awe and trust towards him, but partly it's just she is overloaded with grief and emotion, and she can't say any more. And so Jesus does not answer in the same way that he did to Martha. He sees her weeping, and he sees her friends weeping, and he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Translators find those words hard to translate because they are really, really intense words. This wasn't Jesus felt a little teary when he heard it. This is the kind of grief that shakes your whole self, perhaps even with a note of anger in it towards death, towards evil and suffering and pain. I had recently had a grieving person say to me, I don't want sympathy, but I want empathy. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Personally, I'd quite like sympathy myself, but um, not everyone does. Um, Jesus is showing empathy here, not just sympathy. He genuinely feels some of the grief they feel. He is deeply, deeply moved. He is grieving with those who grieve as we are commanded to. Rejoice with those who rejoice, grieve with those who grieve. And he asks where the tomb is, and as they invite him to come, he weeps. As I'm sure you know, if you ever need a quiz answer to what's the shortest verse in the Bible, that's it. Jesus wept. Only work in English, won't work in some other languages. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? There's so many people over the centuries who have thought it didn't really, Jesus shouldn't weep. He's God after all. Surely he's above that kind of fragility. But now he weeps. And at risk of spoiling the story, at risk of <laughs> looking forward to what comes next, Jesus knows what happens next. He's already told the disciples, I am going to wake Lazarus up. Now, if you came to a funeral with the express plan of telling the person in the coffin to please get up, get out, and get back to work and life and so on. How would you walk into that funeral? I mean, I, I hope that we would be better than to give in to the temptation of saying something along the lines of, look at this. <laughs> but we might at the very least be tempted to say, don't worry guys, calm down, it's okay, I'm here, I'll sort it out. You can imagine that, perhaps. Anyone else tempted to say that if you weren't actually able to get, ask them to get up out of the coffin? Jesus doesn't, does he? 
He doesn't do anything like that. He comes and he weeps. He weeps. There's a temptation even now at funerals. So people ask me so often before a funeral, let's have a happy funeral. Let's celebrate this person's life. And there is truth in that. You want to celebrate, to give thanks, to remember someone who's died. But you can't take the grief out of a funeral if it's a real funeral, if you really love the person. And Jesus wept at a graveside too. To weep is not wrong. We weep. We, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, but we do still grieve. We lose something when someone dies. And Jesus, who knows this man is about to get up out of the grave, still weeps. Because there is a horror in death. There is something, we're tempted to say it's natural, that it's just part of the circle of life. Jesus doesn't think so. Jesus thinks it's a horror. There's something vile about it, degrading, something horrific. And when you lose someone, particularly if you're sitting beside their bed when that happens, you know that's true. And whatever happens, you've lost them here and now. You go back to the beginning of Genesis, and it makes it very clear we were not made to die. We're not immortal in ourselves, but we were made to be sustained, constantly given life by God, to share eternity with him. And it was our rebellion against him, our decision to take our lives into our own hands, that left us with nothing more of our lives than what our two hands can hold. And that runs out. And then there's the consequence, the punishment for our rebellion, that eternal half-life that comes from being divided from him. Death is evil, and death is not natural. Not in the, in the deepest sense. And so Jesus weeps. He weeps with them. He weeps truly. He is deeply moved in spirit. He is troubled. And here you do see his love for them, don't you? He loves them not with just the kind of vague, distant love that fixes things, but the kind of tender, gentle love that shares their pain and their tears and their horror at what's happened. When you grieve, this is the Jesus you come to. The one who, yes, can answer prayers. Who does answer prayers. Yes, the Jesus who will bring life in the end. Who will raise us up at the last day. He really will. But he is also the Jesus who wept with those he loved by the side of the tomb. Who feels every ounce of your pain. We need the love that brings truth, but we also need that tenderness, that love that he has. You're going to have to wait a couple of weeks for the conclusion to the story, even though I've already spoiled it, and you already knew it. It's a good conclusion, though. And when they get to that conclusion, they will find a wonderful new blossoming of hope in Christ and faith in Christ. Before they get there, though, they have discovered Jesus' truthful love that brings truth, that gives hope. They've also discovered his tenderness, his gentleness, his real grieving love. They wouldn't have seen that otherwise. It's only part of what they're going to see through what Jesus does. Jesus loves them in a strange way, but it is real love, and it will help them. They're going to see his glory, Jesus said, when Lazarus comes back to life. But even now they see an aspect of his glory. They'd have seen his miracle working power, if things would have been different. And that's wonderful. 
here they see his kindness. And that is no small part of Jesus' glory. That he, the ruler of the universe, is willing to come down to a single person's grave and weep beside it. That is how much he cares. And we haven't even touched on the fact that he did that at the cost of his own life because he knew that he would not go home if he made that journey. They tasted his tender, gentle, gracious love towards the broken and the grieving because he hadn't come before. Plenty of us are grieving now on some level. Um, perhaps we're waiting for a different kind of answer to prayer, waiting for Jesus to come and to answer. And none of us can give easy answers about why we have to wait. Um, none of us can give simple, quick answers about why he doesn't answer. But in the end, it will ultimately be so that you can know his hope-giving truth and his comfort-giving tenderness, just as they came to know it. In the end, it will show you his love and his truth and his tenderness in ways that perhaps none of us expect. Let's pray. Help us to see, Father, the depth of love and care that there is in Jesus Christ. The one who weeps, weeps bitterly for his friend and who loves us too with the same love, the same deep affection and tenderness, and not just sympathy, but empathy, who feels our pain, and who loves us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.